opposed that would be contrary to the Bible, that would try to destroy our faith in God and our confidence in His Word. We have tried to do that over the course of the year, and we're going to try to continue to do that. And one of the most common objections that you will ever encounter is this issue that we just read about in Deuteronomy chapter 7, where God tells through Moses the children of Israel to go in and possess the land of Canaan, that they are going to utterly destroy all of the Canaanite nations that are there, that they are going to slaughter them. And what the atheist does is they begin to pose that if that is your God, if that's the God that you believe in, why would you believe in such a monstrous God? Why would you believe in a God who is a, just a vindictive bully, essentially? And this is an important question and objection that we need to be prepared to answer. I think I will be able to illustrate how widespread and even popular this position has become. But this battle is also fought on two fronts that we need to recognize. There are those who would be the liberal scholars of people who would claim to be Christians. People who would claim to believe in the Bible that would say, okay, yes, this is a problem for me. And so I don't like this presentation of God, and so they try to alter this idea. The other idea is that atheists, they deny the very existence of God. They use this to try to show that the presentation of God is love that you read about in the New Testament versus the God of the Old Testament that... It's something that is completely incompatible with itself and self-contradictory. And so you have these objections that are made that God, as He tells the children of Israel to remove the Canaanites from the land in several passages in Deuteronomy, just we just heard in Deuteronomy chapter 7, but also in chapter 9, I would point you there. In Deuteronomy chapter 9 and in verse 1, when Moses says to the children of Israel, Hear, O Israel, you are crossing over the Jordan today to go in to dispossess nations greater and mightier than you, great cities fortified to heaven, a people great and tall, the sons of the Anakim, whom you know and of whom you have heard it said, Who can stand before the sons of Anak? Know therefore today that it is the Lord your God who is crossing over before you as a consuming fire. He will destroy them and he will subdue them before you so that you may drive them out and destroy them quickly just as the Lord has spoken to you. Indeed, God did tell the children of Israel to go into the land of Canaan that you are going to get rid of the Canaanites. But what is oftentimes objected to in verses, that you can look those verses up at another time, but in Deuteronomy chapter 7 and chapter 9, we've already noted those in other passages as well. 
But what the presentation that atheists oftentimes make is that this just makes God a genocidal monster. That God is just a racist, he's prejudiced, and this is his act of ethnic cleansing. He's trying to get rid of this group of people. These are just some of the things that people accuse the Lord of being and doing. And as I mentioned, this battle is fought and waged on a couple of different fronts. In the liberal scholarship among supposed Christians, what I think is so problematic is that they have accepted the atheistic position as true, the supposition that they begin with, essentially. Let me illustrate that. In uh, a book that was written by a, a man named Peter Inns, he said, Christians today denounce genocide as evil. After all, it's hard to see Jesus who gave his life for others advocating the systematic extermination of a population. Plus, he told his followers, the true children of God, uh, the tr true children of God love and pray for their enemies. Some of Israel's ancient prophets strummed a similar chord. The book of Isaiah says there will be a time when Israel's God will settle all disputes between nations without violent conflict. Swords and spears will be forged into farming tools. War and fear among nations will cease. He continues on, all will be at peace because the true God is a God of peace, not of war. And certainly not of an assembly line slaughter of people from the wrong tribe. Slight problem though, earlier in the Old Testament, God also orders the Israelites to uh, him, uh, uh, you know, enter the land of Canaan, march from town to town, and embarrassing shuffle of feet, wipe out their pagan inhabitants, men, women, and children, and take over their fields and live in their houses. It's hard to appeal to the God of the Bible to condemn genocide today when the God of the Bible commanded genocide yesterday. This is what we call a theological problem, and it's a big one. Not only because of the whole Canaanite business, but because of violence seems to be God's preferred method of conflict resolution. As early as the sixth chapter of the Bible in the book of Genesis, God floods the entire earth and kills every living creature except Noah, his family, and the animals on the ark. Later, God tests Abraham by commanding him to slit his son's throat as a sacrifice, though God stops Abraham at the last second once he knew Abraham would go through with it. In the Exodus story, God's tenth and final plague against the Egyptians is to strike down their firstborn, and then a few lines later, he drowns the entire Egyptian army in the Red Sea. Later in the book of Exodus, 3,000 Israelites who built an idolatrous golden calf are purged by their own people with God standing by. In the book of Leviticus, Aaron's priestly sons, Nadab and Abihu, are consumed by the fire of God for some unexplained misstep while officiating over the sacrifices. Numerous laws carry the death penalty like worshiping other gods, blasphemy, working on the Sabbath, the prescribed day of rest, or adultery, and we're only in the third book of the Bible. 
God killing people, both Israelites and others, isn't a last-ditch measure of an otherwise patient deity. It's the go-to punishment for disobedience. You can just see the, the description of God here that it's not a favorable one, right? And this is someone who teaches in a school of theology about God. And this one, this gentleman, Mr. Inns, is not someone who uh, denies Christianity or anything of that nature. The way that he actually goes about trying to resolve these things because he sees this conflict of interest. And while he also wants to maintain his conviction about God's goodness in Christianity is that he argued that these never really happened in the way that it's prescribed or described in the Bible. He says these stories are essentially just exaggerations by Israelites because that's what all tribal people did in the ancient Near East. If you've ever, I'm a big fan of the Andy Griffith show. And perhaps you'll remember there was an episode, if you're a fan of the show, there's an episode where uh, Andy and, and Opie and all Opie's friends are in the sheriff's house and they're all complaining about this new history teacher, Miss Crump. They don't like Miss Crump at all because she makes them learn dates and history. And then Andy kind of makes some off-the-cuff remark, yeah, you don't need to know all that stuff. Go out and play, have fun. And then Miss Crump comes and sees Andy because she's not too happy with him. And so what he does at the end of the story, or at the, uh, at the end of the episode is he tells them about the Minutemen and the shot heard around the world, right? We talked about the shot uh, heard around the world with the American Revolution. And he really, you know, milks it in telling them about the American Revolution. He exaggerates it a little bit, as we talked a little bit this morning about hyperbole and exaggeration. That's what we do when we talk about the shot heard around the world, isn't it? That's what, how ends really kind of resolves this, essentially, is that these are just national stories of pride that got exaggerated over time and that's how you got it in the Bible and that's what you read. He doesn't accept a historical presentation of the Old Testament Scriptures, which I don't agree with. And maybe you find that problematic, but here is what some atheists argue. Richard Dawkins in the book The God Delusion the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniac, sadomasochist, capriciously malevolent bully. It doesn't seem like he and Mr. Inns disagree too much in their presentation of God. In another atheist, Christopher Hitchens, in a book, God is Not Great, regarding the Canaanite conquest, he says that they were 
pitilessly driven out of their homes to make room for the ungrateful and mutinous children of Israel. Maybe you think this is just something that is going on among scholars and they're just trying to, you know, write books and sell books and things like that, that this really doesn't come up in many of our lives. Well, if you are ever on the internet, and if you have something called Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or uh, TikTok or whatever you want to get on, you will probably see some memes. And I hope you can read some of these. This is one that has circulated. And it says, remember that time I indiscriminately murdered every firstborn son in Egypt because of decisions taken by Pharaoh? That's right, if you worship the Abrahamic God, you worship genocide. Imagine you raising kids, teenagers, high school age kids, college age kids, and they're inter beginning to interact with some of these kinds of arguments. They hear the presentation of this, of the Bible and of God, and then they see this on the internet, which only reinforces some of these ideas. Another one, it is clear that the Bible was not written or inspired by a God, but by superstitious, fearful, tribal, ignorant, misogynistic men with a very poor sense of how to deal with bad behavior, a God surely would know that a fair and effective justice system demands for one thing, that the punishment should fit the crime. And this gets even to very some practical issues, even some political issues, such as positions on abortion, where this meme is certainly trying to make fun of those who would defend the right for life. Try being a Christian and supporting life. Meanwhile, God, in quotes, but you shall utterly destroy them, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite, as the Lord your God has commanded you. You can see that this becomes a very prevalent issue that we need to be able to interact with and address and be able to deal with and try to understand and have some, have some answers to this. Because people are going to believe that if you believe in the God of the Bible, if you believe that the Bible is inspired, that it is historically accurate, then you believe in a God who is a monster and a vindictive bully. And that you are very inconsistent for your positions and your views on life and things of that nature. And so we need to understand why would God go through this? Why were these statements and commands in the Bible? Why were the children of Israel told to destroy the Canaanites. Well, the destruction of the Canaanites was not an approval of Israel per se. It was a judgment for the wickedness of the Canaanites. If you would, turn to Deuteronomy chapter 9 with me. In Deuteronomy chapter 9, as 
God, as Moses is speaking to the children of Israel, he says in verse 3, Know therefore today that it is the Lord your God who is crossing over before you as a consuming fire. He will destroy them and he will subdue them before you so that you may drive them out and destroy them quickly just as the Lord has spoken. Then notice what he says in verse 4. Do not say in your heart when the Lord your God has driven them out before you because of my righteousness the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. But it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is dispossessing them before you. It is not for your righteousness or for the uprightness of your heart that you are going to possess their land. But it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord your God is driving them out before you in order to confirm the oath which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Know this, know then, it is not because of your righteousness that the Lord your God is giving you this good land to possess it, for you are a stubborn people. That Moses is telling them, don't think that this is because you deserve this land. You are merely being an instrument, essentially, to judge these wicked Canaanites, these wicked people that have sinned grotesquely before God. God was clear to them. That God was using them as an instrument to punish the wickedness and the sin and the idolatry of the Canaanites. God gave the nation of Israel the land of Canaan because of His promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is going to be faithful to His word and to His promises. And what you see time and again is that the Canaanites were destroyed because of their iniquities. All the way back in the book of Genesis. In Genesis chapter 15... When God is making His covenant with, or renewing His covenant with Abraham, in Genesis chapter 15, Abram falls into a deep sleep and he sees a vision. And God speaks to Abram and He tells him that he is going to have many descendants. And Abraham believes God. And it says in verse 13, God said to Abram, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, or they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. But I also will judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You will be buried at a good old age. Then in the fourth generation they will return here for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. The Amorites being one of those Canaanite tribal nations. And he says that their iniquity is not yet complete. That you think about that statement and God, He is foretelling to Abram that I'm going to judge these nations who do wicked things and act in a way that is wrong. But it's not as if God is pictured here as a bully. 
have some more things to say about that. But he is pictured as someone who is long-suffering, isn't he? He's going to wait 400 years or more for that to occur. But God is very clear that this is based on their actions. This is not just because God woke up one day on the wrong side of the bed and was angry and felt like bullying some people. He was judging people based upon their actions and for their sin, for their iniquities, specifically their idolatry in Deuteronomy chapter 7 in the passage that we heard in our reading this evening. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, this seems to be the great litmus test for why this would occur. In Deuteronomy chapter 7 and in verse 3, Moses says, Furthermore, you shall not intermarry with them. You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor shall you take their daughters for your sons. For they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will quickly destroy you. But thus you shall do to them, you shall tear down their altars and smash their sacred pillars and hew down their ashram and burn their graven images with fire. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. That God did not want his people who are called to be a holy people, a holy nation, he did not want them involving themselves with the idolatry of the Canaanites. And it's very much based upon their allegiance to God and to serving God and God alone. The Canaanites were very wicked people that served many gods, that had departed from serving the one true and living God, their most notable God, or idol, was Baal. And Baal in the Lexham Bible Dictionary is the storm god and bringer of rain. Baal was recognized as sustaining the fertility of crops, animals, and people. His followers often believed that sexual acts performed in his temple would boost Baal's sexual prowess and thus contribute to his work in increasing fertility. And that provides the link between idolatry and actions. Deuteronomy chapter 9. Well, rather in Leviticus chapter 18. In Leviticus chapter 18 and in verse 20 through 30, I want you to notice in the book of Leviticus as God is revealing His expectations for sexual conduct for Israel. He says in verse 20, You shall not have intercourse with your neighbor's wife to be defiled with her. You shall not give any of your offspring to offer them to Molech, another god of the Canaanites. Nor shall you profane the name of your god. I am the Lord. You shall not lie with a male as one lies with a female. It is an abomination. 
Also you shall not have intercourse with any animal to be defiled with it, nor, any, nor shall any woman stand before an animal to mate with it. It is a perversion. Do not defile yourselves by any of these things. For by all these, the nations which I am casting out before you have become defiled. You want to know what they were doing? It's all of that stuff. And they were doing it in the name of their God. They were participating in adultery and temple sex and bestiality and homosexuality and child sacrifice. And so he says in verse 25, for the land has become defiled. Not I don't think he's talking about there the literal land that they live on. He says, the land has become defiled, therefore I have brought its punishment upon it so that the land has spewed out its inhabitants. The land stands for the people living on the land. Thus Israel was to live a holy life. One that did not behave in such a way. Or else they were going to be spewed out as well. In verse 28, he says, So that the land will not spew you out, should you defile it, as it has spewed out the nation which has been before you. For whoever does any of these abominations, those persons who do so shall be cut off from among their people. This isn't that God just didn't like the Canaanites and approved of the Israelites, is it? God's a very fair God, isn't He? He says, if anyone does any of this, I will judge them. Very different kind of picture than what we are oftentimes given. That God is just a monstrous bully who is misogynistic and an ethnic cleanser and just loves to destroy And while God certainly did remove the Canaanites from the land, and at least partially because Israel did not completely obey that command anyway, which I find with Peter Inns and his whole argumentation that these were just exaggerated stories, they did a pretty poor job of exaggerating the stories. Because guess what? In the Bible, if you continue reading, they actually acknowledge that they left Canaanites in the land. It's a pretty bad story, isn't it? But while God did remove the Canaanites from the land and gave Israel the land, whom did He destroy? It wasn't every single Canaanite. Remember the story of Rahab? In Joshua chapter 2, Rahab the harlot when we are introduced to her in the book of Joshua, Joshua has sent spies to spy out the land, to spy out the city of Jericho. Rahab receives those spies and deals with them kindly. But what I am so impressed with in her faith here, in Joshua chapter 2 and verse 9, she says to the spies, I know that the Lord has given you the land. And that the terror of you has fallen on us, and that all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. And what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to Sion and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. 
Don't you think if those were just mere exaggerated stories that had circulated, they would say that really didn't happen? <laughs> if you're a Canaanite woman, you'd say that didn't really happen the way you think it did. But he go, she goes on in verse 11, When we heard it, our hearts melted, and no courage remained in any man any longer because of you. For the Lord your God. And she invokes the name of Yahweh, the covenant name of God. The Lord your God, He is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. Now therefore, please swear to me by the Lord Yahweh, since I have dealt kindly with you, that you also will deal kindly with my father's household and give me a pledge of truth and spare my father and my mother and my brothers and sisters with all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. So the men said to her, Our life for yours. If you do not tell this business of ours, and it shall come about when the Lord gives us the land, that we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Rahab was preserved, wasn't she? When the children of Israel came against the city of Jericho. That indicates something to us. I think that is very important that God was willing to spare the few Canaanites who would acknowledge Him and believe in Him and accept Him as their God. Remember in the story of Ruth? Remember that wonderful and beautiful statement that she makes to Naomi in the book of Ruth in chapter 1 and verse 16. Ruth was a Moabite woman. She was a Canaanite in the period of the, the judges right after the conquest. Uh, there was all sorts of animosity. There was all sorts of fighting. And remember what she says in Ruth chapter 1 and verse 16. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or turn back from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God my God. That indicates something to us, I think, there. That God was willing to accept anyone who would give their allegiance to Him. Who would believe in Him. And would follow Him and commit their life to Him. Even Canaanites if they would repent, there's willingness to accept. That's a picture of God's grace and God's kindness and fairness, isn't it? And it's interesting if you read the book of Deuteronomy in Deuteronomy chapter 20, there God gives instructions to the children of Israel on how they were to conduct their warfare. And with conducting their warfare, they were first to offer peace to those whom they might go up against. And you read in the book of Joshua, in this book of conquest, of taking the land, in Joshua chapter 11, in Joshua chapter 11 and in verse 19, it says, oh, in verse 18, it says, Joshua waged war a long time with all these kings, 
There was not a city which made peace with the sons of Israel except the Hivites living in Gibeon. They took them all in battle. I find that to be an interesting statement there that not a city made peace with the sons of Israel. How could you make peace if peace wasn't first offered? Seems to indicate that they refused peace. They refused to accept the Lord, their God. And against the picture that has been painted by the atheists or even some of those who claim to believe in the Bible and in, and in God and in Christianity, what we may fail to remember is that God is not just this vindictive bully. He is a God who offers blessing to all nations, including the Canaanites. In the book of Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 19, this is an important passage here. In Isaiah chapter 19 and in verses 23 through 25, Isaiah, he says, In that day there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. And the Assyrians will come into Egypt and the Egyptians into Assyria and the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. In that day, Israel will be the third party with Egypt and Assyria. A blessing in the midst of the earth that you weren't going to get from Egypt to Assyria without going through Israel. And then verse 25, Whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, Blessed is Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. That Israel... They were supposed to be this blessing. They were the conduit of God's blessing to all nations. This does not fit the descriptions of a violent, hateful God who's just eager to wipe out a complete ethnic group and to commit genocide. So how do we go forward with this? How can we converse with those who are skeptics and those who are atheists? Well, one of the questions that will probably be brought up is why would God allow women and children to be killed? And I'm not saying I have all the answers for these issues. I want to make that clear. There may be some things that we just really cannot resolve all of the questions and concerns that could be brought up. But what I do want us to be able to do is create a dialogue where we can point a way forward out of the narrative painted by atheists and skeptics. Why would God allow such action? Well... God is the author and creator of life, isn't he? And as such, humans, we don't get to make demands on how long we might live. We don't get that. And since we are not God, our insight is going to be limited, no doubt. And God is the one who has rightful claim and authority 
over life. That's one thing that I think we need to acknowledge, believers. Another point that you might be able to make is that if infants and children were killed, they would have been spared a life of idolatry and wickedness and in all the immoral behavior that was associated with idolatry. And upon their death, they would have entered into the presence of God. Even if they were deprived of earthly life, they would not be deprived of everlasting life. Those may not be ideas that we are entirely comfortable with, but I think they at least help us converse with some of these issues. appreciated one author's perspective. He said, I used to think that wrath was unworthy of God. Isn't God love? Shouldn't divine love be beyond wrath? God is love and God loves every person and every creature. That's exactly why God is wrathful against some of them. My last resistance to the idea of God's wrath was a casualty of the war in the former Yugoslavia, the region from which I came. According to some estimates, 200,000 people were killed and over 3 million were displaced. My villages and cities were destroyed. My people shelled day in and day out. Some of them brutalized beyond imagination. And I could not imagine God not being angry. Or think of Rwanda in the last decade of the past century where 800,000 people were hacked to death in 100 days. How did God react to the carnage? By doting on the perpetrators in a grandfatherly fashion? By refusing to condemn the bloodbath, but instead affirming the perpetrators' basic goodness? Wasn't God fiercely angry with them? Though I used to complain about the indecency of the, wrath, of the idea of God's wrath, I came to think that I would have to rebel against a God who wasn't wrathful at the sight of the world's evil. God isn't wrathful in spite of being love. God is wrathful because God is love. There's a lot there that we could probably unpack and think about, isn't there? But what he says that when there are atrocities that are committed, when there is sin that is committed, when there is evil and iniquity that is just abundant on the face of the earth, do you want a God that's going to turn his head and turn a blind eye? and never speak of it, and never recognize it? Is that the kind of God you want? Or do you want a God who's going to do what is right? A God who's going to demand and serve out and mete out justice? I know which God I want. God, as the creator of life, can judge life and end life.
these are just some important truths that we need to wrestle with and recognize. That God is a severe God who will punish the wicked. In the book of Romans, in Romans chapter 2, in Romans chapter 2 and in verses 5 and 6, the Apostle Paul says, But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to each person according to his deeds. God's judgments are not arbitrary. They are based upon our actions, our deeds, our works, what we do with our life. And those who spend a lifetime of wickedness and sin and iniquity, God will judge. But as I mentioned in Bible class this morning, that two things can be true at the same time, right? Or at least, or maybe even multiple things can be true at the same time. That you get this picture of the severity of God who punishes the wicked. That is a true statement, but it is also true that God is patient and long-suffering and does not want to punish the wicked. In 2 Peter chapter 3, in 2 Peter chapter 3 and in verse 19, the Lord is not slow about His promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. That God wants to save everyone. But He will not turn a blind eye to injustice and sin and iniquity. God is a God of patience and long-suffering. Just as 2 plus 2 equals 4, or 7 minus 3 equals 4, or 2 times 2 equals 4, or 4 times 1 equals 4. Those are all different statements of fact, but they all come out to the same number, right? They are different statements, but they are all true statements. The severity of God and the patience of God, they aren't in competition with each other. They work in harmony with each other. Just as that author was saying that God in His wrath is not just a wrathful God, that He, or in spite of His love, He is wrathful because of His love. God is a loving God who saves those who have faith in Him and His Son, Jesus Christ. He is a God who judges and holds His creatures accountable. He is a God who will punish the wicked for eternity. And He is a God who will also grant eternal life. Out of His goodness and out of His grace. I think we need to get rid of the caricature of God that is in many people's minds, even, I'm talking about us now sometimes, not not the the liberal scholars uh, among Christianity or anything like that. I'm talking about conservative and evangelical people who identify as Christians. 
We cannot say that the God of the New Testament is a God of love and the God of the Old Testament is a God of hate. We can't accept that kind of premise. If we do, then we're accepting all the fallacies that come along with everything that we've been trying to answer tonight. We can't say God is only a God of love or only a God of grace or mercy. We have to recognize that God is a God of justice and a God of wrath. That all of these things work hand in hand, not in competition with each other. But why does this all really matter? I mean, okay, we've tried to refute some of what atheists believe. Okay, that could be helpful. I think why all of this matters is because the conquest of Canaan shows God's wrath towards sin and how He will punish sinners. The conquest of Canaan shows the varied dimensions of God. Even in the passages that we read in Deuteronomy and such, We see that God is a God of love who loves His creation so much that He will not allow them to fall into abusive, wrong, sinful, unjust actions. And that's why people don't like this. That's why this makes them feel uncomfortable, isn't it? Because our society and the way that it is going, they want to get rid of the very idea of God. And if you have the very idea of God, you have to accept that He is going to be holding us accountable. And so we've got to try to slant the conversation about God, that He's just this mean, vengeful bully and this immoral monster in order to dissuade people from believing in God. For atheists, it's not even just that God is the problem. Religion in general is the problem. That's the poison to them. Religion and belief in God is a poison and atheism is the antidote. But if the Bible is true, if the Bible is true and the Canaanite conquest happened for the reasons that the Bible presents, not from what is painted in a very poor picture, then here's why that becomes a very applicable problem for atheists and for those who live in our world. Adultery is wrong. Homosexuality is wrong. Abortion is wrong. Killing the unjust or, or the, the innocent is unjust and it's wrong, and all these acts will be judged. That's why this matters. That's why they want to get rid of this. That's why they want to pose this as a problem for believers. But this is why this is a problem for them. 
God is a God who will judge. And it doesn't end there. Remember, God was judging them because of their idolatry. You think about idolatry in that they were trying to shape and to form an image of God. They would bow down and worship that. You may think we don't have that going on today. No, but we do try to destroy the image of God, don't we, in our society? You hear it on the news all the time. People are abusing and destroying the image of God, which is a form of idolatry, whenever they would mutilate their bodies and deny their gender and male and female. It's an abuse of the image of God. No wonder they want to get rid of a God who is going to hold them accountable. And ultimately, why all this matters is because hell is very real. And God will punish the wicked. And unless they repent of their sins, people are going to spend eternity in torment for their sins. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 8, where Paul says, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. I think what atheists believe to be a problem for Christians actually ends up becoming a problem for them. That is why they fight so hard against it. The only solution that there is for us. Don't fight against God. Don't fight against His Word. We need to believe it and obey it. And you can avoid God's wrath and you can find God's love and His grace and His mercy. Just like Rahab did when she repented and acknowledged her faith in the one true and living God. God is willing to grant forgiveness to anyone who comes with sincere heart, believing in Him and the sacrifice of His Son, Jesus Christ. Tonight, if you're not yet a Christian, we want you to become a child of God. Do not delay any longer. Become His child. Believe in Him and obey Him. And if you have become a child of God, but you've not been living for Him and faithfully, will you not repent and turn away from the things which you've done that are wrong? We're here to help you and encourage you in whatever way we can. If you're subject to the Lord's invitation, come now as we stand and as we sing.